This episode may contain themes that are unsettling for some listeners and includes dialogue that is inappropriate for children under 14. Listener discretion is strongly advised. I'm Alyssa and I'm Brooke and this is for God's sake don't drink the Jones juice welcome back to episode 36 hey y'all um we're sorry that this episode is late one day late y'all one day we did forewarn you guys last week but it's just been one of those weekends so and my lovely co-host had a birthday yesterday so happy birthday it was actually the day before yesterday yeah, but well thank you <laughs> that's what i meant <laughs> <laughs> i know when your birthday is it would have been it's been a it's been a long weekend for me like it's still my weekend right now because i'm off on sundays mondays tuesdays so i don't know what the day of the week it is it's tuesday okay <laughs> anyway we're a day late so hey hey all right. So I don't think we have any important announcements to make uh, at the beginning of this episode. One thing I did just want to briefly mention, though, is that I do still have 12 Ouija board Don't Drink the Jones Juice t-shirts at my tattoo shop. If you want one, come get one. $25 each. Elena. Elena, this message is for you. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I've still got several. So if you guys want one, please come get them. Um, it does tremendously help us financially um, to be able, you know, to get the things that we need to make this podcast possible. So we appreciate every bit of help. We do. And we still haven't made a Patreon, even though that's still yeah. in the works. Um, we'll get there. I do also, I forgot about this until just now, but I know I mentioned this last episode, but if you haven't read the article in GCSU Signal, yes, um, we were mentioned in it. We actually had an interview with one of the writers, and um, our podcast was featured, and we had a picture yes. on the front page. Yes, so um, we shared that in, in the group, so go read that, because that was very exciting for Brooke and I. We were yeah, <laughs> very I mean, aesthetic about it. So We're in the Georgia State University newspaper. Yes, whoop, whoop. That's, that's pretty that's a big deal. Absolutely. And and thank you so much, Isa. Is that her name or Isa? 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 I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> but thank you, dear. You were an incredible interviewer. And uh, we probably sucked. But thanks for sticking it out with us. And you wrote a amazing article. It was very, very well very written. Well written. Yes. So yeah, so. thank you for that. That was and thank you cool. for listening to, you know, did you read yeah. her message where she said she listens yeah. a lot? Yeah. So hopefully we uh, live up to the person who recommended us. So, <laughs> yes. Anyway, with all of that being said, um, is that all we've got to mention? Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, we'll delve right into case number one. Uh, this week, I am covering the Ellen Greenberg case. Familiar with it? Not at all. All right. Well, you are about to be. You guys know I like these cases that like blow your mind where like you're left with nothing. So enjoy. I, I don't know. I like these kind of cases personally because after I hear about them, I go like do my research and I like try to solve it. You know what I mean? You know, it's so crazy because I was actually thinking about this um, when I was doing my case, which by the way, guys, you get a double whammy. It We both are doing 
unsolved <laughs> cases. So, um, but anyways, I was thinking about how, um, you know, when you know a case and you know the ending, you know who did it, uh, you, um, you're like, wow, that's so obvious. Like, why didn't the police know about it? But you know, when they're solving it, it's just like these mysteries where we're like, nothing seems obvious. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yep. Well, uh, here we go. So Ellen Greenberg, who was an only child, was born in New York City, New York to Josh and Sandy Greenberg on June 23rd, 1983. Both of her parents worked in the dental field. If you guys remember my case from last week, I covered a couple that worked in the dental field. So it's just kind of funny how a lot of things that we cover and you know, older cases, sometimes it like comes back. I don't know. Yeah. That happens a lot. It does. Yeah. Like how you mentioned last week, how like a lot of my cases are focused in Texas. It's strange. So Ellen grew up being a girly girl, but she also excelled in sports and she was very athletic. The raven, raven haired, beautiful woman with a bright smile was described as incredibly kind with a nurturing soul because of that nurturing soul. Uh, I'm sorry, Ellen went into teaching and her students absolutely adored her. The morning of January 26, 2011, the 27-year-old first grade teacher called her mom while driving to work, and it was just a typical conversation. Being the only child, she was extremely close with both of her parents. The school that Ellen worked at had dismissed early that day due to a blizzard, so Ellen left the school, stopped for gas, and then headed home to her apartment at the Venice Lofts in Manayunk, Pennsylvania. I hope I said that correctly because that was something I forgot to look up, but it's (laughs) Manayunk, Pennsylvania, I believe. Um, She shared her apartment with her fiancé, NBC television producer Sam Goldberg. Dang. It would later it would be later that evening Ellen would be discovered by her fiance stabbed to death in their sixth floor apartment. Oh my gosh. Ellen was found slumped over, sitting in her kitchen floor with a knife rammed four inches into her chest. Oh my god. Ugh, yeah. A strainer filled with blueberries and a freshly sliced orange sat on the counter. Two clean knives were in the sink. Ellen was found holding a clean white kitchen towel in her left hand. A total of 20 stab wounds were found on Ellen's body. Dang, so whoever this did came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Ten of the stab wounds were to the back of her neck. One stab wound was to the back of her scalp. And another wound was on her stomach. And eight of the wounds were found on her chest. She also had 11 bruises and various stages of healing found on her right arm, abdomen, and right leg. So some were new, some were old. That's a lot of bruising, though. Sounds like someone who knows her. Yeah. Police initially said that Ellen committed suicide. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. No way. Do you remember what I just said about how many wounds were found in the back of her neck? Ten of the stab wounds were to the back of her neck. I may be dumb, but I don't really think that you're going to people... take a knife and stab yourself in the back. of. I mean, <laughs> pick your hand up and act like you're stabbing yourself in the back of the neck. That doesn't happen, right? I just don't think people stab themselves to death when they commit suicide. No. But after her autopsy, the medical examiner examiner determined that Ellen's death was a homicide. Well, no, duh. He noted eight wounds to her chest. They ranged from punctures just 0.2 centimeters deep 
to the four inch final plunge of the still embedded 10 inch steak knife. She had two, she had two inch stab wounds to her stomach and a 2.5 inch long gash across her scalp. There were 10 wounds from Nick's from two to about three inches deep on the backside of Ellen's neck. So we're talking about deep stab wounds to the yeah. back of her neck. I'm just literally like reenacting this right now. I, I can't even pull my arm far enough back that I think I could like do that to myself. Okay. What on earth <laughs> makes you think that would be a suicide? That would never be any like, no, dude, I would be looking down at these police officers. Like you guys are obviously fucking stupid, right? It gets crazier. So oddly, uh, the day after the autopsy was conducted, the Philadelphia Police Department backtracked and stated that the death of Ellen Greenberg has not been ruled a homicide. What? Homicide investigators are considering the manner of death as suspicious at this time. I will say it is suspicious. Mm -hmm. The case was reversed and officially ruled a suicide in February of 2011. What is these people like are i'm not a homicide investigator i am not a mortician i am not an autopsy conductor i'm not a medical examiner but just having half of a brain i can say it would be extremely difficult for somebody to stab themselves in the back of the neck i just don't see someone doing that though and then just plunging a knife all over their body especially like in your skin out and like you're sitting there or standing there like rinsing blueberries and you just all of a sudden decide to just start stabbing like was this an intrusive thought that went too far that's the only thing yeah it's crazy so ellen's father josh greenberg told crime online that because of the shoddy police work basically the medical examiner then decided to reverse the findings and label ellen's death a suicide Shockingly, nobody from the police station or the medical examiner's office contacted Ellen's family about the change in the case. The family found out about the change on the news. Wow. How pathetic. When questioned, Ellen's fiance, Sam Goldberg, told police that around 4.45 that afternoon, he had left Ellen alone at their apartment and went to the complex's gym. He said that when he returned a half hour or so later, he found himself locked out and the apartment's swing bar lock was engaged from the inside. This was unusual to Sam as they only did this at night and never did it during the daytime. He banged on the door, but he got no response. So he then tried to reach his fiance by phone. Sam sent Ellen increasingly frustrated texts over a 22 minute time span. And they read, hello, open the door. What are you doing? I'm getting pissed. Hello, you better have an excuse. What the fuck? Ah, you have no idea. Hmm. Okay. Over 22 minutes, those are the texts with no response. So still getting no response from her, he decides to go to the lobby and he speaks with the security guard. He begged the guard to help him break the lock, but the guards was like, no, I can't do that. It's against policy. So with no help from the guard, Sam forced the door open himself and he spots Ellen and he calls 911. It was now 6.33 p.m. So we're talking nearly two hours after he left to go to the gym. 
Sam was, and I quote, instructed to start CPR until he noticed the knife in her chest and then was instructed to stop. Wait, how do you not instantly notice a knife? That would be the first thing I would see, right? Yeah. Police arrived on the scene and Ellen was pronounced dead at 6.40 p.m. Neighbors would tell police that aside from Sam banging on the door, they hadn't heard a peep from the apartment. No blood was found anywhere in the home other than in the kitchen. The snow from the blizzard that had collected on their sixth floor balcony was undisturbed. So it looks like there's no forced entry, right? Right. Homicide Sergeant Tim Cooney said that Ellen's death was treated as a suicide that night for several reasons. There were no signs of forced entry. The apartment door had been locked from the inside until broken into by Goldberg. Goldberg had remained on the scene and was cooperative. Investigators reviewed his key fob records in the apartment security footage to make sure that everything lined up with what he had told them. Everything lined up. His alibi was solid and he was removed from the list as a suspect. There were no signs of an intruder and Ellen showed zero defensive wounds. And there was no one else's DNA on the knife used in the killing except for Ellen's, which factored heavily in the police's determination. But it gets even weirder. The apartment's security footage, uh, security footage also showed no signs of unauthorized access by anyone around the time of Ellen's death. So we got nothing to show that anybody entered that apartment. No footprints in the snow, no forced entry, no defensive wounds. Even still, please tell me how this girl did this to herself. I, I just can't. Police also initially claimed that Ellen may have had some, and I quote, mental issues going on. Seemingly out of nowhere, a month or two before her death, friends and family remarked that Ellen had begun to change. Her once bubbly and outgoing demeanor had become overwhelmed, stressed, and anxious. When her parents would pry and try to understand what was going on with her, she would reply that she was just stressed about her teaching job. Debbie Schwab, who was one of Ellen's best friends, said that Ellen went from being, and I quote, one of the happiest people I knew to filled with anxiety. Debbie continues on saying, she kept saying that it was because of school. She was very vague about everything. If I asked her anything, there would be a long silence. She didn't want to talk about it. Around the same time, Ellen told her parents that she wanted to quit her job and asked them if she could move back home to Harrisburg to live with them. So they thought this was odd, um, given that she was due to be married to Sam in August. Hmm. But their daughter assured them that it had nothing to do with Sam. Um, Dad Josh would later say at no time did she complain about anybody or anything except that she just wanted to come home. It definitely sounds like he's the issue. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, like, you don't want to tell your parents. You're just like, "Mm," you know? It has to be him. So how did he lock the door? Okay. I'll tell you, and I'm, obviously, this man has been cleared by authorities. Mm -hmm. Hypothetically speaking, this is my theory, if he was the one to do it. Maybe she was attacked inside, and maybe... The suspect fled and she was able to get up and lock the door behind them. And then she collapsed. Back where she was in the kitchen, though? 
I, I, how else? And wouldn't there be blood? Drips somewhere. somewhere? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I, do you have a better theory? Because I, I don't know. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how that lock works. Well, I'll kind of talk about that, too. Um, there is some speculation that it maybe could have been done from the outside. So Ellen's concerned parents urged her to see a psychiatrist, you know, and mm-hmm. she did. And she started seeing a doctor named Ellen Berman. Ellen had three appointments with Berman. Ellen felt overwhelmed at work, but there was never any feeling of suicidal thoughts. And she had nothing but good things to say about her fiance, the psychiatrist would tell investigators. Berman even noticed a smile when Ellen mentioned him. Berman recalls asking about abuse and the descendant denied any verbal or physical confrontations. So Berman um, described Ellen as having severe anxiety and prescribed her multiple drugs, including the anti-anxiety drug Klonopin, Ambien, which is a sleep aid, and Zoloft, an antidepressant. All of these drugs list suicidal thoughts and behavior as possible side effects. They were the only drugs found in Ellen's system when she died. Berman last saw Ellen on January 19th. Three days later, many of Ellen's loved ones received their save the date cards for her wedding. And this was four days before her death. So she seemed like she was excited for the wedding, you mm-hmm. know, and but it's still that question, like, why did she want to come home? You were due to be married in just a few months. Right. I don't know. The other thing that gets me is that nobody heard her scream. Right. Nothing. That is weird. It's very weird. Even if it was a muffled scream, someone would hear it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I feel like I I don't know, but I'm almost imagining almost like a loft style apartment. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like if you go in the Porterdale lofts, you know how it's like inside? Yeah. Like, I don't think it's like a apartment that like outside you go in through the outside. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I'm almost positive. I read that it was a loft style. So that's, those are very close together. And like, I feel like you hear everything. Yeah. Yeah. So Cooney, who was the homicide sergeant who supervised the investigation, um, and Detective John McNamee and other assigned detectives began a new quest. They believed that the information they developed strengthened the case that Ellen had killed herself. She was anxious, they said. She was found in a locked apartment with no evidence of a struggle. No other person's DNA was found on the knife. Detectives believed that the shallow punctures on her bodies were test or hesitation wounds made as Ellen considered stabbing herself to death. I don't know. She had no marks on her body that indicated that she fought with an attacker. In an effort to resolve the dispute over the manner of death, McNamee said he suggested hiring an outside neuropathologist to review a portion of Ellen's spinal cord to determine that if it was if it was damaged by any of the wounds to the back of her neck. If it was, it would have rendered her incapacitated and un- and unable to inflict the subsequent subsequent wounds on herself including that final plunge to her chest so basically if she hit you know the right nerve Mm -hmm. in the back of that that she there's no way she could have done the rest of them right according to mcnamee the neuropathologist who conducted the exam told police that the spinal cord sheath was hit but the cord was not severed ellen most likely went numb thus allowing her to stab herself repeatedly hmm 
I don't know. It still just seems fishy to me. It, it still is. just seems fishy. Most people, especially women, do not commit suicide in that manner. Why not slit your wrists? Why not, Hang you know? Yourself. I just, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like, I've never heard of somebody stabbing themselves to commit suicide. No. And, never once. And just the the amount of wounds. And just, again, I just keep going back to the back of the neck. Yeah. And how difficult that would be to do to yourself. And you would almost think even by the angle of it, you would be able to tell if it was done by oneself or someone else. Yeah. You know what I mean? True. Because if you're going, I mean, I'm sitting here doing this, like it would almost be at an angle, right? If you're doing it yourself, you can't go straight through really. <clears throat> I can't. I don't know. I feel like you, you eh, I feel uh, like you might could, but I feel like, I really feel like they'd be able to determine that. Yeah. Because like the way that I'm holding this. Yeah. I'm stabbing it's like the the knife is like this yes. but if somebody's stabbing you they're it's going be straight like this. through right yeah, yeah. That's what even I'm if they came down mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. hmm. it's just a strange way to attack somebody too i don't know it, yeah. it's all just it's all just weird because and my thing though is like if it was suicide why would she start at her back and not just like start at the front because i feel like if i was gonna stab myself for whatever reason you're gonna go straight for like your heart or something right yeah Yeah. i would go for the front of me because that's just easier access and like from behind it seems like somebody surprised her came up behind her and started Mm -hmm. stabbing her Mm -hmm. so after initially ruling Ellen's death a homicide on March 7th, the medical examiner's office reversed itself again and changed the manner of Ellen's death to suicide, siding with police investigators. We couldn't prove anything else, McCamey said. We were looking, we were just letting things go where it went and that's where it went. And that's all he said. I wonder if it could have been like a professional hitman. Mm, I don't know. So the Greenbergs were devastated and they certainly were not convinced. How could Ellen have done this to herself? The Greenberg said that their daughter was too squeamish to pierce her own ears for a second time, let alone stick a knife in her own back ten times. She chickened out of getting her ears pierced. She didn't like pain, her own pain, said Josh. The whole thing, it just didn't make sense. When we found out certain facts along the way, she had wounds on her back. How do you do that? Another thing that struck them as odd was the fact that Ellen filled up her vehicle with gas before returning to her apartment that day. If you're going to commit suicide, why would you fill your car up? Why would you also be cutting fruit? And Exactly. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. No. If you have plans on going home and killing yourself, why would you put a full tank of gas in your car? You wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. It doesn't sound logical, does it? Ellen's father, Josh, said. It just doesn't fit. Ellen's mom and dad refused to believe the suicide theory. The family's initial attorney, Joe Pedraza, stated, This is a homicide case, and it's indefensible as suicide. Pedraza said it would be impossible for Ellen Greenberg to stab herself multiple times in the back of her head and neck. Think about it. One of those wounds was so deep, again, that it would have paralyzed her. Yeah. So... How did she continue doing that to herself? No idea. Pedraza explained, this means she couldn't have completed the remaining wounds. Pedraza said that this was very powerful evidence. I think it's so powerful that it's clear to me that there's a murderer walking among us or murderers. And that's frightening from my vantage point, he said. 
After suffering months of unknowing and grief, the Greenbergs decided to launch their own investigation for answers. They purchased Ellen's autopsy report, photos of her body from the autopsy, photos of her body at the scene, and the medical examiner's investigation report from the scene. Okay, I have a quick question here. Why do you have to purchase purchase those things? I, I think no that's idea. shitty. That's super shitty. Why do you have to buy that? That's your no daughter. Idea. Yeah. You have to buy it from the government? I think that's bullshit. It's super bullshit. Anyway. At the advice of a friend, Ellen's parents then sent those materials for a review to Cyril H. Wecht, who was the uh, Pittsburgh forensic psychologist, I'm sorry, pathologist, who famously challenged the single bullet theory of the John F. Kennedy assassination. Hmm. This is somebody that knows his shit. Wecht had real concerns about the number and location of the stab wounds, and particularly those to the back of Ellen's neck. Hmm. I don't understand how they wrote this off as a suicide, he would later say. Wex's January 2012 report labeled Ellen's death strongly suspicious of homicide. Now, with Wex's report in hand and wanting more answers, <clears throat> the Greenbergs hired private attorney Larry Krasner, who had a reputation for taking on the police. Krasner believed believed substantial questions remained unanswered in Ellen's death according to (laughs) everyone (laughs) yeah according to a February 2012 draft retainer agreement that he made up for the Greenbergs in May of 2012 he arranged a meeting for the Greenbergs with the police officials and representatives from the DA's office in an effort to get the investigation reopened but nothing would come of it So, through their current lawyer, who is representing them at no cost, former state attorney general Walter Cohen, they filed a public records request to get the police file. It's so crazy to me that they have to go through all of this to get these documents that I feel are legally theirs. Me too, and it's like we're trying to help aid in solving this. Yeah, so. like I feel like they should just hand it over, right? Me too, yeah. It's like kind of like that, uh, what was the case I did? Uh, the military girl. Oh, gosh, the girl that was found shot. Yeah. Uh, um, La- La- Lavina Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. Like her family had to go through so much just to get their records. And yeah. I just think that's nuts. Like give it to the family. Right. Like what is the deal? What are you hiding? You know? I agree. Like I, I can understand like other lawyers and whatnot, like having to pay, but it's a family. Like, that's their daughter, their their husband, their wife, their yeah. grandma. It's just like give it to them. Mm-hmm. So of course they were turned down for the request to get the police case file. So their lawyer Cohen continued to press, and police finally allowed them to view it without making copies or taking photographs. Why? The Greenberg said that they were uncertain what to look for, you know? They're not professionals. Yeah. Meanwhile, they continued to solicit experts to help them out. One was Tom Brennan, a retired 25-state police veteran and former chief of the Dauphin County Detectives, who decided that he would work Ellen's case for free. They've got some smart folks helping them out and well respected and right yeah sounds like it which i think is amazing and and these guys offering to do it for free yeah you know after studying the death scene photos and medical examiner's documents brennan said that the lack of defense wounds on ellen didn't necessarily support suicide he said that he had seen many stabbing victims without defensive wounds 
and he said, it's referred to as a blitz attack, where the victim is attacked so quickly that they're unable to defend themselves. Yeah, I mean, if somebody comes up behind you and starts stabbing you in the neck. And especially if they make you go numb. Yes. Like, you're not going to be able to do anything. Mm Mm-hmm. He explained the victim is taken by surprise and left totally defenseless. Brennan then hired forensic pathologist Wayne Ross to examine a fragment of Ellen's spinal cord, which the medical examiner's office was still in possession of. In 2007, Ross concluded Ellen's cranial cavity had been punctured, which have likely rendered her unconscious and prevented her from stabbing herself so many times. You could plainly see the nerves were severed, recalled Brennan. She would have lost her motor motor skills and been in excruciating pain. She would have most likely passed out or died. Oh, my God. Something else was bugging Brennan. Crime scene images of Ellen at the scene show a stream of dried blood running horizontally across her cheek from the side of her nose toward her left ear. But her body was slumped upright when she was found. So how does that work? Imagine a so you imagine a body slumped mm-hmm. over and there is a horizontal stream of dried blood running to her cheek. That doesn't make sense, does no. it? No. That's almost like she was carried. Right. Right? Like her head would be That makes that no. defies gravity. It doesn't work that way. What is that? It's a car going down the highway. Oh. So loud. That right there is super, super sus. Wow. Imagine just looking at that photo and seeing that and being like, yeah, not a suicide. Yeah. Like, what I a mean, smart person. I probably would have not. Oh, I mean, that's what it. they're trained to look for. Why did nobody spot that before him? You know what I mean? No idea. It's just, it's crazy to me. So, police claimed that she stabbed herself while standing and slid into a seated position on the kitchen floor and that her body had never been moved, right? But Brennan asks, how is the horizontal stream of blood on her cheek explained? The blood flow also baffles former homicide prosecutor Guy DeAndrea as well. DeAndrea is now in private practice. In 2015, while he was still in the DA's office, DeAndrea reviewed Ellen's case file. The blood, pla- the blood path defies gravity, he said. Like I said, you don't need to be a pathologist to have an appreciation for that. Either she moved herself or someone moved her. Right. And there's no blood anywhere else in the apartment. It's all just very, very odd. DeAndrea, who has reviewed about 100 homicides and has seen the entire file, unlike other experts, believes for every piece of evidence, someone could point to this and say, this was suicide. I think someone could reasonably, on the other, on the other hand, point to evidence, even that same exact evidence, and suggest that it was a homicide. So this is the one and only person that has seen the entire case file. Wow. It's all just very, very odd. I feel bad for her. Yeah. Because she knows what happened. Nobody else does. Right. Connecticut forensic scientist Henry Lee, who testified for the, uh, who testified for the defense at the O.J. Simpson murder trial, also reviewed the medical examiner's files for the Greenbergs. In a report he co-authored last year, Lee concluded, the number and types of wounds and bloodstain patterns observed are consistent with a homicide scene. So basically, the Greenberg family has some very, very credible professionals that all agree that Ellen most likely didn't do this to herself. Right. 
Of course, there's the question of the locked door, which police said factored heavily in determining that Ellen was alone when she died. But Brennan and DeAndrea both noted that videos of several methods for manipulating swing bar locks from the outside are easily found on YouTube. <laughs> like I said, so it can be done. And there were also no video cameras in like the hallway. What, I don't know what a swing bar lock is. Is it like one of the, like what you have on your, your garage door? Yeah, or like my front door. Mm, I was thinking on your back doors where you let the dogs out. Like yeah, yeah, same thing. Is yeah. It, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, independent expert Gregory McDonald was struck by the many shallow stab wounds to Ellen's body. Those tend to not occur in homicides. They will stab you, not hesitate to stab you. McDonald mm-hmm. said that um, of the knife wielding, um, I'm sorry, McDonald said of knife wielding attackers. The other issue is that it wouldn't have been impossible for her to inflict them upon herself. It's unlikely, it's unusual, but it's not impossible. But four of Ellen's wounds were several inches deep. The depth, number, and required force of those wounds, as well as the gash on Ellen's head, could be indicative of a homicide, he said. That is not the typical pattern of someone who commits suicide through a sharp instrument like that, he said. (laughs) Duh. Like the others, McDonald also noticed that the stabs went through Ellen's clothing. That part got me. Most people, if they inflict the wounds themselves, they pull the clothes up. They don't go through the clothing, he said. And that part, like I said, it makes a lot of sense to me because I'm thinking if I'm going to stab myself, I would pull up my shirt and stuff. Me too, yeah. I think anybody would think that, right? I don't know why. Like, what's it matter if your clothes go in your body when you're killing yourself? I think because you want to see where you're stabbing. Yeah, you don't just stab right through your clothes, right? Yeah. No, you don't. I didn't even think about that. But then as soon as you said that, it makes sense. I would definitely pull your shirt up. Yeah. 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 Robert D. Keppel, who was a retired chief uh, chief criminal investigator for the Washington State Attorney General's office, who invest who investigated, I'm just way who investigated <laughs> Ted Bundy and Green River killer Gary Ridgway, was puzzled that the knife was left lodged in Ellen's body, something he's never seen in a suicide. To me, oh, in a suicide. Mm-hmm. Do you think she would leave it? If it was a suicide? I don't know. I just kind of thought if it was a suicide, maybe she died right after doing it and couldn't pull it out. Yeah. But I was thinking maybe, like, the killer left it in there to look like a suicide. Right. And, like, did the hesitation wounds to, to make, make it. it. But I don't. I feel like if you're going to set somebody up for suicide, you wouldn't do it in a stabbing situation. You know what I mean? How many stabbings do we know of? And well, suicides. They obviously think it's a fucking suicide. It's so ridiculous. It's apparently possible. So he said, in this particular case, there's so many different wounds, it almost looks like somebody else is doing their thing with her. Yeah. 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 And, and again, remember, we are dealing with very um, credible sources here. We've got... Um, this guy that investigated Ted Bundy and Gary Bridgeway. We've got somebody that um, was the defense for the O.J. Simpson case. Um, who else? We had a, a lot of very, very credible sources here. <clears throat> 
So in February of 2018, State Attorney General spokesperson Joe Grace in a statement said that his office had done a, quote, thorough investigation. Grace Grace provided a search history from Ellen's computer from between December 18th, 2010 and January 10th, 2011, that was recovered and turned over to police on April 1st, 2011. So this report here that I'm reading says that the search terms suicide methods, quick suicide, and painless suicide were found on Ellen's computer. But I will tell you, I read a article later that mm-hmm. said those things were never found. So which one is it? I know. So I don't know. Um, Grace was also able to provide some of Ellen's text messages as well. So on January 8th, Ellen texted her mom. I'm starting to fill the med. I know you don't understand, but I can't keep living with feeling this way. Nine days later, Ellen texted her, Klonopin helped. Thank God. Her mom wrote back, so happy for you. And Ellen said, me too. Oh my God. Wow. The day before Ellen's death, Sandra texted her, you need to see a professional. Ellen replied, okay, I'm just, I'm trying, just scared a bit for everything. According to Grace, this evidence supports suicide as the manner of death, and the attorney general has, quote, closed this investigation. So because the girl was suffering with severe anxiety, that supports suicide. That's what we're saying here. Well, I think a lot of us suffer with a great deal of anxiety. Yeah. The Greenbergs still feel that Ellen's case did not get a thorough thorough reinvestigation and they remain fighting for answers a decade later they're still trying to get copies of all of ellen's files attorney general spokesman grace said that his office would not be releasing them to the family i think that's so shitty like why like what's the point why exactly why i don't understand that like not even i don't understand it at all no i don't I, i i really do not like were they paid off by somebody you know like well that's what i'm thinking because it seems to me like they really did rule this a suicide very quickly mm -hmm. and who does that i would if i were an investigator i walk into a stabbing i am my first thought is never going to be a suicide yeah and then i see 10 wounds to the back of someone's neck it's not even going to be a question i would never Mm -hmm. like if it were me and obviously like not a detective i don't know but that would have not been in my mind at all i would have never once thought oh this could possibly be a suicide Mm -hmm. it would Mm -hmm. in my mind it would be murder yeah 100 that would be all i thought and and, and then of course you have to investigate every side of it yeah but nobody's first thought is going to be this was a suicide like are you kidding me so um the Greenbergs still remain trying to get justice for their daughter, pushing the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office to change their daughter's death certificate from suicide to homicide. If you're, el- if you're interested in helping the Greenberg family, more than 27,000 people have signed a change.org petition calling for the case to be reopened, and you can sign it too. There's also a Facebook page in Ellen's honor called el- uh, Justice for Ellen. So check that out, guys. Let us know what you think. Um, I, I don't know how anybody in their right mind, much much less a seasoned detective, yeah, could call this a suicide. I have no idea. that When you first said that, it, I was shooketh. 
because I will actually be posting pictures on our Instagram and Facebook of um, just like some drawings of like Mm -hmm. where the stab wounds were and like where the knives went in at and it's just crazy to look at like this girl didn't do this to herself no but it it, there's just so many questions plus I kind of feel like if you were gonna commit suicide I feel like you wouldn't have I feel like you would just have a bunch of repeated stabs like in a general area or just like one big giant stab where you know you're gonna die immediately right not sit there and hesitate you know like I don't know that's literally insane so bad for the family like only child you know I mean (laughs) are you laughing at me over here struggling (laughs) Okay, you know, I was trying to be very quiet, you guys, but I was trying to stick my papers in this, like, uh, thing I have on my wall that I keep all my research papers in, and as I'm, like, reaching behind to shove the papers in the thing, like, ev- like 7,000 other pieces of paper are falling out, <laughs> and they're, like, hitting the floor, and I'm, like, trying to talk over it, and, okay, sorry, anyway. I've been telling her she needs to clean that out for, like, a week now. Anyway, yeah, so check out the change.org petition, sign it. I think this case needs to be reopened. Definitely. It's just a shame. Like, it is terrifying some of the things that these investigators, you know, again, this is, uh, you know, I do, I cover a lot of these cases, like the Lavina Johnson case, the Kanika Johnson case, um, Jenkins, I'm sorry, Kanika Jenkins case, the Ellen Greenberg, uh, the first case I ever covered, uh, Jessica Johnson. Mm -hmm. How do you call these things a suicide? I have no idea. I mean, I understand a family when their child commits suicide. You don't want to believe it's suicide, right? But like when every hint, every piece of evidence points to this was not suicide, fight that shit. And like, I get that like... Yeah, the door was locked from the inside that couldn't be locked from the outside. And the but snow it could, on, you know? Yeah, it, there's that if. And then the snow on the balcony wasn't disturbed. Mm-hmm. But th- you just can't look at this and say there is no other way. Yeah. Because there's always another way. Well, and I do want to mention this really quickly, too. This is not something I put in my notes, but I did read an article um, again, Sam Goldberg has completely been, you know, dismissed as any type of, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, suspect, but just kind of thought it was a little odd. Personally, if my fiance was murdered, I would be devastated for a really long time. Yeah. From what I read, this man had another woman living with him within six months of her murder slash suicide in the same apartment. Guilty. I thought that was very odd. Maybe I'm not going to scream guilty, (laughs) but, you know, possibly guilty. Um, He, you know, I don't understand that. Like, let's say he did do it. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, if he did do it. Why? Just leave. Like, why do you have to kill somebody? Just fucking leave. Mm-hmm. Did they have, um, did, did he take like a polygraph? I think basically his alibi was strong enough. There were no security footage. His key fob was clean. Everything matched up. And it was just kind of like, well, all right, he's good. That doesn't make sense to me because like he lives in the house. So he yeah. would know. He found better her. Than anyone. Yeah. You know, he was the first on the scene. He was the last to see her, you know. And going to the security guard to me seems like I'm trying to make my alibi look even stronger. Right. Because personally, if it was me. OK, let me just say 
I leave. I come back home. My door is locked. I can't get in. I'm screaming at the door. I'm banging. I'm texting my husband, you know, open the door, open the door, open the door. First of all, I'm not going to stand outside the door for 22 minutes. Mm -mm. Okay. Maybe I might assume they were taking a nap, but I would be going like me, like I would be banging. I would be banging. And then I would probably just kick the damn door in because I would be so worried that something bad had happened. And you're not going to stand there being a fucking asshole. Saying what the fuck. You have no idea. Yeah. Whatever the fuck you said. Yeah. No, you're not going to get mad. You're going to start getting increasingly worried. And again, as I said, this wasn't something that they did during the day was, you know, lock that latch. So why would she do that? You know what I mean? She wouldn't. It's all just super, super weird. Interesting. Yeah. So was a good and by good i mean interesting case (laughs) i just pray for her family that one day there is a an official a real answer not just like this is what it looks like that makes sense yeah yeah they deserve answers so sign the petition check out the facebook page you guys uh there's more info out there that i didn't give today um but yeah i just I, i thought that was interesting it's horrifying it's it's scary and just to me seems so unplausible Mm-mm, no that's you not know? plausible at so, all that's all i got for you uh we are gonna take a little breather and we'll be back with Alyssa's case Hey guys, welcome back to part two. It's Brooke again. Uh, really quickly, I want to open up part two um, with something that I read when I was on the way to get my stepdaughter from school when I was sitting in the car rider line. Um, I'm going to read some excerpts from the dailymail.co.uk, which heavily point to Goldberg as the killer of Ellen Greenberg. Uh, I also do want to mention that I'm quoting this directly from the article, and I apologize for not seeing this earlier, but again, I was sitting in the car rider line, just happened to come across this article, and I was like, ooh. So here we go. Goldberg's statement to police put the security guard with him when he broke down the door. Remember? Yeah. The guard told both police and the family's own investigator that he was not and had not left his post that evening. According to DeAndrea, the security guard said the same. The thing that he noticed as odd was that Sam kept telling him he had been at the gym, but he wasn't wearing sneakers. He was wearing regular boots. Hmm. By the time Goldberg entered the apartment and called 911, it was 6.33 p.m. DeAndrea points out, that's an hour since he started to try to contact Ellen. I don't know about you, but you're gone 30 minutes and you get back and the love of your life isn't responding. How long before you think there's something really wrong here? 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour? Goldberg called at least two other numbers before he dialed 911, his parents and his uncle, who was an attorney. They were on their way to the scene almost before emergency services. It was his father who called the Greenbergs. DeAndrea had lis- has listened to the audio of the 911 call placed by Goldberg that evening. He said, there's no playbook on how you're supposed to react when you find something like this, but I was very struck at the tone. He was saying, oh my God, oh my God, my fiance, there's blood, but he was completely calm. And the dispatcher keeps asking him to describe what's happening, and he's spending all of his time telling them how he'd been at the gym and come back. 
Then the dispatcher tells him, you're going to have to start performing CPR. She says, "It'll. I'll walk you through it. He says, do I have to? Huh? That stuck in my mind. It's like two or three minutes in that he notices she has a knife in her chest. You know, you're right there next to the body, and it's not like a little paring knife. It's a butcher's knife. Right. You said that. <laughs> yeah. That was my first thought is, how do you not notice the knife? Yeah. According to DeAndrea, Goldberg told the dispatcher she must have fallen on it. <sighs> um, excuse me? Goldberg was left from the scene in handcuffs and taken for further questioning as a matter of course. He, w- he would not speak without legal representation. DailyMail.com has learned that he gave a brief statement, but that subsequent law enforcement attempts to speak with him were declined. Forensic neuropathologist Wayne Ross was more direct in his assessment. He found evidence of strangulation and noticed that there were multiple bruises on the body, some of which were fresh, many of which were older. The patterns were consistent with a repeated beating, he said. He said he found evidence of strangulation. Mm-hmm. That's a new one, right? Yeah. And that reality with all the questions that it raises is something that the Greenbergs have to have had to wrap their minds around. They knew their daughter was not suicidal, but something had been troubling her. Her father described her as not the same Ellen in the weeks before her death. She was nervous and anxious. Friends told her parents that they too had noticed a change and that increasingly she deferred to Goldberg on her decisions and she that she once would have made for herself. Her father said everything was, I'll have to check with Sam. I'll have to see what Sam says. Ellen's fiance is now 38 and a married father of two living in New York. He remained in contact with the family for a year or so following Ellen's death. But calls became less frequent and at his less, and his last communication with them was an email letting the Greenbergs know he was getting married. Goldberg's life had moved on. Ellen's never will. Wow. And again, I quote that directly from the Daily Mail. So just something a little, you know, I found later on, but I did want to mention that and thought that was kind of, uh, I don't know, very suspicious. Do they know if that steak, the steak knife in her chest, do they know if that was done post-mortem or if it was done? I I mean, I think they're trying to say that was the fatal blow that she did to herself. Hmm. So. Because you would notice that. I mean, again... There's so many suspicious things, but let's go back to him wearing boots, saying that he just left the gym. Yeah. And the security guard was not with him when he broke the door down. Well, I think in the, in your, in the, in your part, he, you said that he wasn't. He he didn't come with him because it was against protocol. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he like did it himself. Yeah. Uh all super sketchy anyway sorry for interrupting Alyssa's part I just I wanted to throw that out there because it all just seems very suspicious to me yeah, I mean I think that was important so yeah. all right well let's get to your part okay so today I'm also doing a mystery unsolved it's still people are coming up with theories to it to this day mm-hmm. so I am doing the Diet Love Pass incident. Yay. And there's so much to this, but I just kind of condensed it because mm-hmm. it really is like a lot. And I only am focusing on a few of the different theories that could have happened. So just know, I know there's more to it, but I just 
for the sake of this being not a five hour mm-hmm. episode, I've condensed it. So all right. Also, um, so I did get all of my information from Wikipedia. And the Wikipedia article for this is like extremely long. So if you want to know more about it, you can check that out. Also, this is like... (laughs) A lot of names that I can't pronounce. So if you are offended by this, I am so sorry, but it's... They're not it's russian right yeah they're i'm just gonna have difficulties so just be right and all of them are very long names so please forgive me so okay in 1959 23 year old igor dietlov assembled a group of nine people to go on a skiing expedition across the northern urals in Ferd lost Sverdlovsk Oblast Oblast Soviet Union. Okay. And I did think about looking up the pronunciation to all of these names, but I feel like this is most of my research, so I just didn't. So I am so sorry. Okay. <laughs> So um, there were two women and seven men in the group, which they were all grade two experienced hikers with ski tour experience. And um, they would be receiving their grade three certification after their return from the trip, which this was the highest level of certification at the time in the Soviet Union. So obviously these people are extremely experienced and and they know what they're doing Mm -hmm. um the certification required candidates to travel 190 miles so wow you have to know what you're doing if you're doing that definitely the goal of this expedition was to reach the mountain otorton this route was estimated to be a category three which is the most difficult to travel can you imagine wanting to do that for fun? Nope. <laughs> imagine how cold. I know, I cannot. January 23rd, 1959, the group was given their route book, which had their course as following number five trail. The Sverdlovsk City Committee of Physical Culture and Sport approved 11 people, and the 11th person approved was Simeon... Zolotaryov, something like that, who had been previously certified to go with another group with a similarly difficult expedition, which this is what Wikipedia said. It said that there was 11 people approved, but I know this case only deals with nine Nine. people. Mm -hmm. One of the people, there were 10, so one of them turns back. I don't know what happens with the 11th person Uh because they are not a part of the story, so... I don't know. I'm just letting you guys know that. Before so I... one of them was like, fuck this, I'm out. Kind of, yeah. <clears throat> so the group left for their expedition the same day they received the route book. Um, they took a train to Ivdel, Ivdel and arrived in the morning on January 25th and then took a truck to Vizhai, 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 something like that. They spent the night there and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. 
On January 27th, they began their hike toward Gora O'Torton, and then the next day, a member named Yori Yudin turned back due to knee and joint pain okay. that prohibited him from carrying on with the rest of the group. So he also had like a lot of other things wrong with him, but well, yeah, I mean that's a that's a trek for somebody with painful joints. Yeah. The on the thirty first, the group made it to the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for the climb. The next day, the hikers moved towards the pass. According to diaries and cameras found at the area around their campsite, it seemed as though the group was going to get over the pass and make camp on the opposite side. But due to worsening weather conditions, which included snowstorms and decreased visibility, they lost their direction and were heading west. After realizing their mistake, they just made camp. They were probably super frustrated. Exhausted. Yeah. Diet Love had agreed to send a telegram to their sports club as soon as they made it back to Viz High, which would have been around February 12th. But when Yudin turned back, Diet Love told him that it would probably be longer than that before they returned, which is common. Mm -hmm. That does happen with these types of things. When February 12th came and went, it didn't raise concerns because, you know, they had notified them that they would most likely not be returning back on the 12th. Mm -hmm. By the time February 20th arrived, families of the hikers demanded a search and rescue team. That's a lot of time. Uh, Yeah. Um, One ensued by volunteers and later by the Army and... Militia, I think that's how you, but basically, like, I guess, like a militia. I don't, okay, if I know, um, by using planes and helicopters. On February 26th, searchers found the group's tent, which was abandoned and badly damaged. Um, so the person who found the tent said, The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Remember, it's like very cold. (laughs) It's snowing. Yeah. Um, I think it was like negative 20 degrees. Oh my God. According to investigators, the investigators, the tent had been cut open from the inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Nine sets of footprints, which were left by the hikers wearing only their socks or one shoe or barefoot, led down to the edge of a nearby wooded area on the opposite side of the pass. At the edge of the forest, remains of a small fire were found. This is where the first two bodies were found, that of... Okay. Krivon... Ishinko <laughs> and Doroshinko. Both were shoeless and wearing only their underwear. Oh, is this a married couple, I'm assuming? I have no idea. I think those are just last names, which they're different. Oh, they were different? Different last names. Oh, I thought you said the same thing. Well, they, <laughs> they do sound similar. Okay. I don't know. Um, the branches on one of the trees were broken as high as 16 feet, which indicated that one of them had tried to climb up to look for something, probably the campsite. Wow. 
between the wooded area and the camp, three more bodies were found. That of Dietlov, Kolmogorova, and Slobodin. Their bodies were in positions that suggested that they were trying to return to the tent. Mm-hmm. Finding the remaining four hikers took more than two months. Oh. On May 4th, they were finally found under 13 feet of snow in a ravine 246 feet further into the woods. Three of these bodies were better dressed than the others. Their signs, there were signs that clothing of the people who had died had been removed to use by the others. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? Taking off the clothes of dead bodies to nope. be warm. Mm-hmm. Nope. Like your colleagues, like your friends. Mm-hmm. So sad. I guess you've got to do what you got to do. You're trying to survive, man. Yes. Um, one of these bodies was that of Dubinina, who was found wearing <sighs> Krivo <laughs> Nishinko's burned and torn pants. And her left foot, f- her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. Hmm. It's reported that six of the hikers had died of hypothermia, while the other three had died from physical trauma. Mm. Another victim was found to have a small crack in his skull. Wow. One victim had major skull damage. Two had severe chest trauma. Boris Vazrozadeni said that the force required to cause these injuries would be that compared to a major car crash. Holy shit. The bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures to the chest, which would indicate that they had experienced a high level of pressure. So they have all these cracked ribs mm-hmm. and whatnot, but there's no bruising or anything on the outside. Wow. Yeah. Like if I were to punch you in the in the rib right now and yeah. like you would break your rib, you would bruise. Yeah. But they didn't have any bruises. What does that mean? That they had experienced a high level of pressure to their bodies. I guess something like, I don't know, honestly. Mm. That's eerie. It's so, that to me is like the weirdest part about all of this. Mm-hmm. Four of the bodies were found in a creek and all of them had soft tissue damage on the head and face. Dubinina was missing her tongue. What the fuck? Her eyes, part of her lips facial tissue and a fragment of skull bone could that have been like an animal getting to her i was thinking probably but like what kind of animal just takes your tongue your eyes part of your lips your facial tissue and a fragment of skull bone like Mm, i don't know i feel like something like pecking at it like you know like i was thinking like a raven or something a hawk i don't know maybe but like in negative 20 degree weather i don't know I don't know either. I just, I mean, I don't know what kind of birds live in this area or what kind of animals live in this area or what kind of animal can survive in those conditions. But I just think personally, that's super weird. Yeah. Um, Zolotaryov was missing his um, eyeballs and Alexander Kolovtov was missing his eyebrows. What the fuck? Just his eyebrows. That's bizarre. That that one's the weirdest one. Yeah. Just your eyebrows? Like, were they shaved? Were they eaten? Like I'm that? thinking, like, the the skin where his eyebrows are torn off. Oh. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. But I don't know, so. Weird. Yeah. 
Um, the forensic expert indicated that these injuries happened post-mortem. Mm-hmm. It's also worth noting that the temperatures where the group made camp was around negative 20 degrees and none of them were wearing anything even remotely okay to keep them warm. Mm. Another thing is small traces of radiation were also found on one of the victim's clothing. Radiation. Just one of them, though. It was initially thought that the indigenous Monzi, Monzi, Monzi people had attacked the group for making camp on their lands. But this was ultimately dismissed because the only footprints at the scene were that of the hikers. They also showed no signs of hand-to-hand struggle. Hmm. On July 11th, 2020, Andre Kuryavok, Kuryakov, I don't know who is the deputy head of Ural's federal district, announced that an avalanche was the cause of death. Independent computer simulation and analysis by Swiss researchers also suggested that an avalanche was the cause. Hmm. I wonder if that would be the reason for the like internal injuries but no bruising. Yes. Well, we're about to find out why that may not be the case. Hmm. Benjamin Radford, who is an American skeptic author, also suggests that an avalanche was most plausible. And here I have, um, like, a, I guess a quote on, like, his idea of kind of what happened. Mm -hmm. So he says, The group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose bodies was most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four meters, which is 13 feet, of snow, and more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. Dubinina's tongue was likely removed by scavengers and ordinary predation. Mm-hmm. So that's his theory on what happened, which is, I mean, it makes sense, I guess. But when we kind of get into like the contradictory evidence, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, but did an avalanche happen? Right. So there were no obvious signs that an avalanche had occurred. An avalanche would have left specific patterns and debris over a wide area. Also, the bodies found within a month of the event were covered in shallow snow. Had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have also been swept away. This would have caused more serious injuries and the tree line would have been damaged as well. The footprint patterns that were leading away from the tent didn't indicate that these people were fleeing in panic but that of a normal speed so they weren't leaving the tent scared they it's like they got out and they were just walking away right 
also, okay, so he was saying in, in that quote that I said, or that I read, that they were not dressed because they had been sleeping in the tent, but I kind of feel like if it's negative 20 degrees outside, you're probably going to sleep in your clothes, right? Yeah. I think that's so weird. It can only get so warm in that tent. And I'm sure it was... Still probably zero degrees. Right, exactly. Like, you would think they'd be in, like, those super big sleeping bags with like long johns on and yeah probably even like their jackets and stuff yeah i don't know i don't i'm not a camper i don't think you're gonna get half naked and sleep in the tent when it's negative something if any of you ever go camping in negative 20 degree weather let us know how that works yeah oh titus's doctor is calling me let me answer this really fast i'll be right back okay sorry guys um my, I had to take my son to the doctor last Thursday, and they were just now calling me to tell me that he w- tested positive for strep, but he's been on an antibiotic since then, so he's fine. But anyways, I forgot where I was at. Okay, so um, another speculation on how their deaths could have occurred was from a military test site. The campsite fell within the path of the Soviet parachute mine exercise. This theory suggests that the hikers were broken up by the sounds of explosions, and then they fled the tent without grabbing any of their belongings or clothing. But then again, you know, they didn't leave the tent in a panic. Right, right. It's just kind of like they just stumbled away. Right. I wonder if being in temperatures like that could, like, fuck with your head. So... There is a theory about that, and I'll get to that in a second. Okay. So after, you know, like without grabbing any of their belongings or clothing, they became unable to return back to the tent for supplies, and then they froze to death. There are records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the same time the hikers were there. Parachute mines detonate in the air as opposed to striking the ground, and they produce similar injuries to those found on some of the hikers. Hmm. Internal damage with no external evidence of the internal damage. Mm -hmm. There were reports of glowing orange orbs floating and falling in the sky around the same area as the hikers and were allegedly photographed by them as well. So. The bodies with the missing eyes, facial tissues, and whatnot have been theorized have been taken by scavengers. So, you said orange orbs, mm-hmm. aliens. I mean, that's a theory. There's also a, a theory about a yeti, which I did not add in here. But if you want to know that theory, you can quickly Google it because yeah, <laughs> it's a thing. Um, so obviously there are more theories about what happened to the hikers, such as paradoxal undressing. Have you yep. ever heard of that? Is that when you're so cold that you basically think you're warm and Yeah, it's like when you were um experiencing hypothermia, mm-hmm. you know, your body starts getting super hot. Yeah. So they start undressing, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed right. to keep your clothes on. Well, again, Kenika Jenkins. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um and so people usually start undressing, mm-hmm. which kills you because mm-hmm. then you, your body is still getting cold. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people think that they're probably, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of were like taking off their clothes and mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean. Losing their minds. Right. Yeah. So um, there's also a theory on infrasound and combatic winds. Um, 
but nothing really explains fully what could have actually happened at Diet Love Pass. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really all I have. What do you think happened? I have no idea. I think... um, I think the most plausible scenario is that basically the cold got to them yeah and then maybe they woke up in the middle of the night a couple of them did and they all just kind of went crazy because i imagine temperatures like that could really mess with you i'm sure and that's kind of what i think too Mm -hmm. i kind of think that maybe they were you know i mean most of them did die from hypothermia yeah so it does make sense um and then maybe the ones that um tried to I mean, because if they're in that tent and they're getting so hot, they're probably not thinking straight. Some one of them probably could have torn open the tent and gotten out because like they're like cold air. I need the cold air. Yeah. And then maybe some of them who weren't, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of experiencing that were trying to like get away and or like get them or, you know, Mm -hmm. try to, you know, get them to come back in the tent. And then everybody kind of gets separated. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it was three or four of them were found under 13 feet of snow. And those were the ones that had the internal damage, but no external damage. Well, that would make sense. In my opinion, I mean, 13 feet of snow. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I know snow's not super heavy, but. No, that's, that would be heavy, I think. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm just thinking like a wheelbarrow of snow or whatever. Oh, right, right. But I think like if, and if it fell on you, mm-hmm, like let's mm-hmm. say they're kind of like. You're not getting out from under that. Exactly. And yeah. so I think that it's, that's kind of plausible in my opinion. I'm not an expert on mm-hmm. snowy weather, but. I know there are a ton of other theories like paranormal, alien, yeti, like you said. I think it was just a crazy freak thing. I do too. Personally. I do too. And, um, you know, there could have been the parachute testings happening, Mm -hmm. but I don't really think that, I mean, maybe that did happen while all this was going on and, Mm -hmm. and that's what caused that 13 feet of snow to fall. I mean, I don't know. I have no idea, but. Either way, it's, it's very interesting. It'd be interesting to hear like all the theories, you know what I mean? Yeah kind of see what professionals think and i mean even to this day it's such a big deal because nobody knows there are a lot of these theories i feel like they're forced yeah like a lot of these people are coming up with theories that the evidence doesn't support it just to freak people out and not even that i think they genuinely think that that's what happened Mm -hmm. But there's just not enough evidence to prove. Mm-hmm. I think the hypothermia one, I think that that's the most logical because most of them died from hypothermia. Absolutely. And then some of them died because. And, and like I said, the one, the woman that's, you know, tongue was out and eyes were out. That sounds to me like an animal. Yeah. And why would it just get those organs? Because that's easiest for it to grab at true you yeah know what i mean and i guess that maybe those are like some of the well i don't know about your eyes but i know your tongue i'm sure like if you have your mouth closed it's a yeah. warm area yeah i don't know i don't know about the eyebrows either <laughs> yeah the that eyebrows that, that's a weird one yeah. yeah but like let me just rip these eyebrows off and eat them right that's and very strange i'm sure a lot of that's what was happening was super chaotic even if Ooh, their yeah. footsteps looked normal i mean i can't imagine like the atmosphere well you know, maybe to the ones that weren't, you know, 
under the hypothermia yet. I think some of them were, and they were probably losing their minds. Yeah. And I don't know where I was going with this, but um, and what was it? It was three of them that didn't die of hypothermia. Is that what you said? I think it was like, um, I can actually look and tell you. Yeah, I think the ones that did were probably the ones that it was already messing with their minds and they were, you know, half clothed going out there and they yeah. froze to death. Six of them died from hypothermia. So three didn't. Three died from physical trauma. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's my theory. Yeah, I think <clears throat> that's the most logical thing to happen. Either way, but... it's very interesting and it's definitely something to look into. Yeah. Um. Again, this is just a super condensed version. Mm-hmm. So... Um, a lot of it's just kind of like technicalities and stuff like that. And I just, yeah, I didn't really want to go too much into it, but that's just kind of the gist of it. So very interesting. Let us know what you guys think about Ellen's murder slash suicide mm-hmm. and let us know how you think the diet love past people died. Mm-hmm. We would love to know your theories on all of them. Absolutely. If you have more information on either one of them, make a post in the group and we would love to read it. Mm-hmm. Is there anything we need to say besides our socials, social medias? I don't think so. Um, I know we had to re-record the beginning of the episode. Did we, we did mention the GSU. Yeah, that was our, our second take. Okay, yeah. okay. So, yeah, um, again, just in case you missed our intro, um, we were featured in an article by the Georgia State University Signal, which is a newspaper. And uh, check that out. It's online. It's in our Facebook group. And if you haven't joined our Facebook group, do it. Did we share that on Instagram? No. You know what? I tried to. I was going to put it like in our um, bio. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, it didn't work. So I was going to put like, click, you know, like make a little post, like click link in bio. Yeah. But it, I couldn't get it to like go on the bio for whatever reason. Okay. We should do it in a post and also like hashtag GCSU or GSU. GSU. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then um, maybe those who did read it from the school can Mm -hmm. more easily find us. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, that was exciting. So I guess um, if you want to join our Facebook group, you can do so at For God's Sake, Don't Drink the Jones Juice. Um, follow our Instagram, guys. There are, I've just made a post about this in Facebook, but there are over 1.6 thousand of you in our Facebook group, but only like a little over 500 people follow us on Instagram. So mm-hmm. follow our Instagram at Don't Drink the Jones Juice. You can also follow our TikTok that we never post on at Don't Drink the Jones Juice. Um, send us your paranormal slash true crime stories at Don't Drink the Jones Juice at gmail.com. We have been forgetting to request that every episode. Mm-hmm. We would like to do more listener juice episodes. So mm-hmm. send in your stories, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's it, right? I believe so. All right, for God's sake. Don't drink the Jones juice.